A word of thanks to the Lord for the worship team here at Trinity. I'm so grateful. There's not a Sunday goes by that they don't lead my heart in worship, no matter who's up here leading. So I'm so grateful to the Lord for them, even this morning. I want to ask you to find your way with me to the end of the book of Acts this morning. The beginning of chapter 27 and the end, the end of chapter 27 and the beginning of chapter 28 will be at the end of that book. As you're making your way there, let me remind you that in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, we see Saul. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul is more of his Greek or Roman name. We see Saul or Paul be gloriously saved. He's been a persecutor of the church, and in Acts chapter 9, God reaches down and extends his grace to Paul and saves him. Since chapter 9 in the book of Acts, as we read, Luke presents Paul as several things. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and God sends him to the non-Jewish part of the world to share the gospel. Luke presents him as a pastor. He's presented as a defender of the gospel. He's presented as a theologian. He's presented most often as a missionary. As a matter of fact, he's the leader of three very long mission trips in the book of Acts. The majority of the second half of Acts covers those mission trips. Thousands of miles by sea, thousands of miles on foot, dozens of cities, and countless sermons. The second half of Acts covers those three long missionary journeys that took years and years and years of Paul's life. We get to see how Paul lived as a missionary. How does he act in Ephesus? What does he preach in Athens? Who does he meet in Corinth? Where does he go in Philippi? Then at the end of Acts, God presents a rather long description of Paul traveling by ship to Rome to stand trial for his preaching. He's headed to Rome because he's appealed there in the kind of the court system of the Roman Empire, and we have this long narrative at the, book, at the end of the book of Acts where he is just traveling. There's no synagogues, there's no churches, there's no sermons recorded. He's not even officially a missionary sent out by any church. He's more of what I would call an ordinary man in these chapters. He's actually a prisoner in the passage we're going to read today. He's one of 276 people on board a ship headed to Italy. And the question I sometimes ask when I'm reading through the book of Acts after seeing all these multi-year mission trips across thousands of miles, is why at the end of the book of Acts do we get just kind of this travel diary? In today's terms, it would be a travel blog. You get to go on a long vacation and you just blog about it. None of us are reading it because we're just jealous that you're on vacation, but you think we're reading it and we're not. And God has Luke write this long travel blog of Paul's journey to Rome. And I just ask why sometimes. Why is that included? And I, Let me give you one possible this morning because this is the way I want us to think about it. 
Could it be that God wants us to see what a missionary looks like when he's not on a mission trip? What does faithfulness look like when Paul's not officially on a mission trip sent out by a church, a church, usually in Antioch, that's going to expect him to come back and give a report of his mission trip? What does a missionary look like when he's just an ordinary person not on a mission trip? At least not officially. So if you found Acts chapter 27, we're going to start reading in verse 13. We're going to read quite a bit of this narrative and then talk about it. So Acts 27 verse 13, just the beginning. He's on his way to Rome by ship to stand trial. Now when the south wind, verse 13, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they have obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a a tempestuous wind called a northeasterner struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Let me just stop right there. We're going to read a little bit more. But we read that and may not realize the scope of this storm that this first century wooden ship is now in. It is possibly hurricane force winds. And they can no longer even steer the ship. This passage we just read mentions several things they did to try to save the ship, just to stay alive. When they come under a little bit of shelter from one of the islands, they actually pull in the lifeboat, the little boat, that the dinghy that follows behind it, probably now filled with water from the storm. And when they get a little protection from an island they're passing, they try to get it on board to save it. Then Luke says they reinforced the large ship with straps. We don't know if they ran underneath it long ways or across, but they tried to strap it all together to give it more support just to keep the ship together. Then they throw some type of anchor overboard to drag to try to slow down how fast the ship is being pushed by the storm. Then they throw some of the cargo over so the ship will sit higher up in the water. They're throwing over what they were, what they were paid to haul. And finally, on the third day, they start throwing over tackle and gear just to try to get the ship lighter. It's so bad, verse 20 says, they couldn't see sun or stars for days on end. So they can't navigate. That's how they navigated back then. The people on this ship with Paul are literally blind, lost. It's lasted for days, and they lose all hope of even surviving. I don't know how many of you have been seasick. This is seasick for days. This is 
we, we don't even know where we're going to make land if we make land. We may be lost at sea. They're traveling across the Mediterranean Sea. We may be lost at sea and never found. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Now, stop right there and say, even Paul has that urge to say, I told you so. Because earlier, before they left Crete, he said, we shouldn't go. They didn't travel across the Mediterranean from about mid-November to about mid-February in the winter because the storms were just too bad. Paul has traveled thousands and thousands of miles by sea at this time, and according to 2 Corinthians, has been shipwrecked a few times and spent a day and a night in the open sea. And he's looking at the weather, and he's looking at the calendar, and he's like, guys, we, we shouldn't go. He probably knows more about sea travel than the sailors on this ship. So he has to tell them in verse 21, I told you so. We should not, you should, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are with you. Now, let me just stop here and remind you, and I pray this is true of you. Sometimes there is a unique blessing for lost people just because they're in the presence of saved people. And God actually says, I'm going to save the other 270-some people because I love you. Remember in the book of Genesis, God said, I'll not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if I can just find ten faithful people. Sometimes, and I, pray, I do pray this is true of us, people are just like, I, I just want to be with the believers because sometimes part of the blessing from God splashes off of them and lands on me. Have you known people like that? They, they so walk with God, you just want to be around them because maybe you'll get a blessing. And that's happening here. God's saying, I'm going to spare the ship, Paul, and it's because of you. The God whom I belong to and the God whom I worship has said, do not be afraid. God has granted you and all who sail with you. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, now folks, it's two weeks in this storm. Two weeks no sun, no stars, can't navigate, have no idea where they're at, sick as can be, scared as can be. After 14 nights, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. That's, the, that's what they call the middle of the Mediterranean. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding, see how much water they were in, and found it to be 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, so now they're at about 90 feet of water. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they lowered the, the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out more anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's boat 
and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. You know, they probably couldn't eat from being so sick. They probably, in this kind of storm, couldn't even prepare their food. Can you imagine trying to prepare food? And there's a chance that some of their food has been spoiled because of all the water that's washed on board this ship. And he says, hey, it's time to eat. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat that was into the sea. So the, the rest of the cargo, they decide they've got to throw overboard. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You know why they were doing that? If you were a Roman soldier in charge of a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, you may have to do the sentence of the prisoner you let escape. So if he had a 10-year sentence, you got it because you let him escape. If he was going to die, you got it because you let him escape. So they're like, let's just kill him now because in this storm, they're probably going to escape. But the centurion, who we find out earlier in the chapter, his name was Julius, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He didn't let them slaughter all the prisoners. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. I mean, the ship's breaking up. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. And just a couple of verses in 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, I'm just going to tell you right there, it had been game over for me. I, I would have been like, God, I would have rather died in the sea. I mean, I, Paul does, here in a minute, what every snake should have happened to it. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire where all snakes belong. I know Luke didn't say that, but we're saying it. Where all snakes belong, and Paul suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds, and they said, He must be a god. 
What do we learn from a travel blog about a ship and a storm and throwing cargo and gear over and Paul telling them it's time to eat and then the ship breaks up and they swim to the shore and there's a fire and they warm up? <clears throat> no preaching, no churches, no mission trip, and yet Paul includes this, or Luke includes this about Paul. God wants us to have this rather lengthy story. Maybe, maybe it's because we get a glimpse or a portrait of what faithful missionaries, faithful Christians look like when they're not on a mission trip. So here's what I'd like to do. I, I'd like to try to give us just three lessons we learn from a faithful missionary when he's not on a mission trip. Three lessons. And then if there's time at the end, I want to give you just one other observation, not really one of the lessons. is This story also illustrates a truth. And if we have time at the end, I just want to mention it. So... Lesson number one, this story reminds us, remain courageous when outnumbered. Remain courageous when outnumbered. Who's on this ship with Paul? Well, there's Paul, and this is part of the book of Acts where Luke uses the we, so apparently Paul was, was with Luke. Luke says, we did this and we did that, not they. So there's Paul and Luke, and according to chapter 27, verse 2, there's Aristarchus, who was a Macedonian. So Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus are the only believers we know that are on this ship. The rest were apparently Roman soldiers, sailors, travelers who are wanting safe passage to Italy, and other prisoners. So if I can do the math right, that sounds like 273 to 3. That's outnumbered. And Paul apparently liked those numbers. Three against 273. Sounds perfect. And in verse 23, Paul says, I have a message from, and I love this, the God to whom I belong and the God I worship. I have a message for all 273 of you, and the message comes from the God to whom I belong and the God I worship. This is personal to Paul. I belong to him, and I adore him. I worship him. The one who owns me and the one I adore has spoken, verse 24, and here's what he said. Church, if, if you're the prisoner on board the ship headed for trial, if there's ever a time to kind of hedge your bets and pull back and not be quite as courageous, this is the time. And Paul's like, no, this is the time for courage. Three against 273, and yet my God has spoken, and I need to tell them what he said. Paul was in a literal storm, I mean an actual storm on the sea, and his life was in a storm. He's lost his freedom, and he may be about to go lose his life in Rome. So a literal storm, and his life's in a storm. And he says, my God says this ship is going down, and none of you will die. Paul had the faith to believe that God would keep his promises. Paul had the courage to report what God said. Here's God's promise. I believe it because he owns me and I adore him and I worship him and here's the promise. You guys can take it or leave it. 
God had actually spoken to Paul all the way back in verse uh, 11 of chapter 23. He told Paul in chapter 23, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. You're going to have to testify about me in Rome. <clears throat> if Paul, and I no doubt believe he did, remembered what God had said to him in 23.11, he's like, everybody could die on this ship, but I can't because God's already said, I must testify in Rome. So I'm not dying. And now God's given me the rest of these people. Paul, since chapter 23, verse 11, had long delays and major setbacks. It's been years since he received that promise in chapter 23. Years. Paul doesn't believe that long delays and major setbacks can waver God's promise. He has absolute confidence in God's promise. So let me just ask you something. On days when you're not on a mission trip, when days when you're not officially working for God, do we have that kind of confidence in God's word? Even when we're outnumbered. My God said it, and I'll report it. The God to whom I belong and the God that I adore has spoken, and I believe him. When you read through the Bible like that, because that's where God speaks to us today, do you have that kind of confidence in the Bible? Outnumbered at work, outnumbered at school, outnumbered in your family, do you say, I belong to him, and I adore him, and he has spoken, and that settles it for me. I will report, no matter how unpopular it is, I will report what he says. I think we see a little bit of his courage even in his prayer. He gathers them all around, and in verse 35, he says, let's eat. They haven't eaten in days. Had I been there, I'd be like, you first, Paul. Let's see if you can keep it down. And Paul says, listen, we need to eat. And then verse 35 says, he prays in the presence of all of them. I think Paul's saying, listen, God's got this storm. God's got the storm. So let's eat. Wait a minute, let's not eat. I need to pray first. And he prays in the presence of all of them. So let me just ask this. Okay. The people you're around, what do they believe about you? Do they believe that you belong to God? Do they believe that you adore God? And do they believe that you believe everything he says? Not do they believe you go to church. That's not enough. Yeah, she's a churchgoer. Yes, he's a churchgoer. No, she belongs to God. She adores God, and she believes everything God said. That's the courage of Paul on this ship, even though he's outnumbered. Second lesson. Not only do we need to remain courageous, we have to balance sovereignty and responsibility. Now, this is a unique one to me in this story. We have to balance sovereignty and responsibility. It's amazing to me that God announces in verse 24 his promise. No one dies. 276, and all 276 of you will be alive tomorrow. I won't lose a one of you. That's the promise, an absolute promise from God. So God's credibility is on the line. Paul, this God you serve, the rest of us don't really know him, but you have this amazing statement that God's going to get all of us. He's not even going to lose 10% of us. And God cannot lie. Paul knows that. God will keep all of his promises, and he announces all of us will live. 
And then Paul says in verse 34, now everybody needs to eat so you'll have your strength. With what's coming, we're all going to need to regain our strength. We haven't eaten in weeks. Strength to throw the cargo over, strength to steer the ship, strength to fight the storm, strength to swim through the waves here in a little bit, and strength to reach the shore. You're going to need your strength. Eat. His attitude is not, all of us are going to survive. That's settled. Therefore, just relax and don't do anything. We have a promise from God, God's sovereign, so we have no responsibility. Whether you eat or not, you're going to survive, so don't worry about it. That's not his attitude. God gave us an absolute promise. You will survive. You're going to need strength to survive. You better eat. No. I don't need any strength. God's going to... No. Eat. Eat. Instead, his attitude is God is sovereign. All of us survive, so don't stress. Don't stress in life like God hasn't got this. God is sovereign. We all survive, so let's get busy surviving. Let's get busy surviving. God can use a miracle to keep his promise, or God can use ordinary means to keep his promise, whichever he wants. He doesn't ever need sin to accomplish what he wants. He can use miracles or ordinary means. He may use ordinary means, so Paul's like, we, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to do our part. If we're all going to survive, let's give maximum effort towards surviving. Then he says in verse 38... Let's lighten the ship. Let's throw the cargo overboard. So they get busy doing that. Why do that? Why? They want the ship to sit higher up in the water, right? I mean, they want it to be lighter so it doesn't draft as much. That way, when it does run into ground, they'll be closer to the shore. You might think if we're all going to survive, it doesn't matter whether we run aground 100 yards from the shore or we run aground 50 yards from the shore because we're all going to survive. So why does it matter that we lighten the ship so we can get closer to the bank? It matters to Paul. Eat, you need your strength. Somebody could have said, why? Weak swimmer, strong swimmer, it doesn't matter. We all survive. Paul's like, no, that's not the way it works. Let's lighten the ship. And let's eat. Let's do our part. God's promised to do his part. Paul was a man of God and a man of action. He was trusting and he was practical. Being practical doesn't mean you're not trusting. So Paul had this amazing courage even when he was outnumbered. And second, he has this balanced view of God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility even on board a ship. One guy I read this week said, Paul believed in a sovereign God and a good breakfast. Can I just bring that into where we live today and just say um, God is absolutely sovereign and we should still study for tests. God's absolutely sovereign and we should still share the gospel. God's absolutely sovereign, and we should still pray passionately. God's absolutely sovereign, and we should still send missionaries. 
God's absolutely sovereign, and we should still go to the doctor and have checkups. God's absolutely sovereign, and to steal one from the life of Jesus, we still shouldn't jump off the pinnacle of the temple just to see if he'll catch us. God's absolutely sovereign, and we should still only date other Christians. God's absolutely sovereign, and we should still throw the cargo over and eat so we have our strength. What a beautiful balance in this narrative of God's got this, now let's get busy about doing our part. Remain courageous when outnumbered, I think, is a lesson from this narrative and keep a balanced view of the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. Third lesson, last one. I think Paul would tell us, demonstrate the heart of a servant. Demonstrate the heart of a servant. Fourteen days in a storm that's so violent, none of them think they're going to survive. And Paul washes up on the shore, cold, wet, weak, and exhausted. I'm just telling you, I know me well enough, I'd be grumpy. I'd be exhausted, I'd be tired, I'd be like, you guys should have listened to me two weeks ago and we'd have never left Crete. I could be laying on a beach in Crete. Instead, I'm swimming into a beach in the middle of a hurricane. God put me on board with a bunch of crazies. And they finally get to the shore, and, and they build a fire trying to get warm. I mean, they're miserable. And the wood's probably wet because of the storm. I mean, it's raining on the island, too. And somebody has to keep feeding the fire. It's going to go out if you don't keep throwing new wood on it. And the greatest Christian theologian in the first century the greatest Christian missionary, the greatest Christian author, the greatest Christian church planter, and the man who just saved everybody on board, apparently said, I bet I could be a pretty good wood gatherer too. And so he goes about collecting wood. Paul gives himself to what some would have thought is the menial, humble, non-spiritual work of serving others by keeping the fire going. I do love this man. If Paul were a member at Trinity, he would not be above taking the trash out, breaking down tables, fixing meals, washing the church van, mowing the yard, folding bulletins, cleaning bathrooms, changing air conditioner filters, or collecting firewood, even though he's Paul. His attitude could have been, I don't gather wood, I write Romans. I don't gather wood, I write Galatians. Instead, his attitude was this, watch this church. God, if you want someone to preach the gospel to the emperor of the whole Roman Empire, I'm your man. And if you want somebody to collect firewood, I'm your man. Because you're the God to whom I belong. I belong to you. And I'm your man when you need firewood, and I'm your man when the emperor needs the gospel. I had a deacon at a church in Texas I was at for one weekend. Um, 
He told me the church, I love the way he said this, he said the church needs men who are comfortable in dress belts and tool belts. The church needs women who are comfortable in lots of different roles. Remember being, um, remember being at a church one time, uh, a large church, I was there for the weekend, and um, their bulletins that they handed out on Sunday to hundreds and hundreds were the kind of bulletins that, that was a trifold, so it, it took several folds, and at about 4.30, I'd, I'd gotten there for a, a youth weekend, and their, their machine that folded the bulletins broke unlike about the 10th bulletin the secretary was running through. So they had hundreds and hundreds at almost 5 o'clock of all these bulletins that had to be folded for Sunday. <clears throat> and so a bunch of us just started grabbing stacks, and they had this, this counter out in the main office, and we were just folding away. And, and one of the men I found out later that was on the church's personnel committee came in and, and just right about 5 o'clock and was visiting, and their church pastor was out helping get these bulletins all folded. And we were all visiting, and... I heard him slip over to the pastor, and he said to the pastor, um, we probably pay you too much to fold bulletins. And I found out later, I mean, good guy, but executive for one of the Fortune 500 company that was in that city, and he had a very corporate mindset. And we pay you too much to be doing this. We pay you too much per hour to fold bulletins. And the pastor just said, no, you don't. But if you want me to wait till after five when I'm on my own time, I will. But if we all pitch in, the secretary gets out of here earlier. If not, she may be here till seven or eight o'clock tonight folding bulletins. That's the heart of Paul here. Yeah, I can write Romans and I can preach to the emperor and I can gather firewood. I can do it all. There's, there's nothing beneath this man. There's nothing that he thought I can't do, even if it's non-spiritual. These people just need warmed up. I can do that. Matter of fact, maybe if they see me gathering firewood and trying to keep them warm, it'll, I'll earn the right to maybe tell them about Christ. What's a missionary look like when he's not on the mission field? Well, he remains courageous even when he's outnumbered. He's telling the truth, he believes the truth, and he'll speak the truth even when the odds look like, I don't know if God can pull this off, get all of us safe in the middle of a two-week storm? Balance sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, and Paul's own responsibility. Yes, yes, we all survive, and yes, we need to get busy surviving. And he demonstrates the heart of a servant. Probably still ringing in Paul's ears was what some of the disciples had told them. Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, serve. If you want to be first, become a slave. Well, what's the one truth that kind of gets illustrated in here outside of the lessons that we see about what life looks like when we're not on a mission trip? Let me try to just show you um, what this story illustrates about the lost world, okay? The people living on this island called Malta were completely unreached. In today's mission terms, we would say they were an unreached people group. Less than 1% of them were believers. Probably none of them were believers. They had had no exposure to the gospel till this shipwrecks on this island out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. No exposure to the gospel. It wasn't a Jewish community, so they had had little or probably no exposure to the Old Testament. 
they had maybe never even heard of the Ten Commandments that God actually etched those in stone and God had a written law. Totally unreached people group. It is a pagan culture filled with lost individuals. That's what this island is. And in chapter 28, verse 2, Luke says, they showed us unusual kindness, unbelievable kindness, extreme hospitality to absolute strangers who just washed up on their shore. What causes lost people to show kindness to strangers, absolute strangers? Don't answer that yet. In verse 4 of chapter 28, a poisonous snake bites Paul, and they assume he's being punished for evil. He must be a murderer, and he dodged the bullet in the sea, but justice still caught up with him, and he's being punished for his evil, because murder is evil. Maybe he's a murderer, and the snake got him. So they seem to have a sense of justice. Evil should be punished. They know that in their hearts. If he's being punished, logically in their mind, he must be an evildoer, because evildoers get punished. So it's a pagan culture filled with lost individuals, and they have this sense of duty to be kind in a crisis. Welcome them, feed them, build them a fire, get them warm, get them safe, out of the storm. They have this sense of duty that even lost people know they should be kind to strangers in a crisis. That happens today. A huge crisis happens, and there are lost people who donate to the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or to some relief effort. And they also, on this island, have a moral sense about justice. They have a sense of right and wrong and that evil should be punished. And yet they've never heard the gospel. They don't know about the God of creation. They've, they've never even been exposed to the Old Testament or God's law. What makes these people on this island have a sense of kindness in crisis and a sense of justice, right and wrong, and evil must be punished? Where does that come from? This passage illustrates the truth that's found in Romans chapter 2. Let me just read it for you. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness. This island narrative illustrates the truth of Romans 2, that even people who don't have God's written law have it written on their hearts. When lost people sometimes in this world want to claim, I have no sense that this sin is wrong, I want to say, yes, you do. You may have been able to silence your conscience long enough or mute it, but written on your hearts, if you haven't completely obliterated it, is God's written law. You know you should be kind to strangers in a crisis, and you know right is right and wrong is wrong and evil should be punished. You don't have to have God's word to know that. God has written it on your hearts. And this is, this is an illustration of the truth in Romans 2. Even people who don't know God know what's written in their hearts. Let me ask you, what, what do you look like on a day when you're not officially doing church work? You're not officially on a mission trip. You're not in Sunday 
school. You're not teaching a Sunday school class. You're not leading a small group. You're not on the worship team up here leading worship. You're not out, as we did this summer, prayer walking and canvassing. You're not doing anything official. You're just ordinary. It's just a Tuesday. Paul's just an ordinary guy traveling on a ship as a prisoner. And all of a sudden, these convictions start showing up in his life because they're not professional convictions. They're just who he is. They're just who he is. And when he's not on a mission trip, he's still courageous. And when he's not on a mission trip, he still has this balanced view of the God of the universe being sovereign, and yet we're still responsible. And he has this view that greatness comes through serving, and if God needs a fire builder, I'll be the fire builder. I'll be the best fire builder I can be. May, may, may you and I remember those things even on our most ordinary days.